Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast where college students and faculty come together to talk about mental health, wellness, mentorship, entrepreneurship. Together, we set and achieve goals for ourselves to get us where we want to be. I'm your host, Derek Malenzak, and this is episode 76 of the podcast. And I am super psyched to be here today for sure. Uh, So I'm recording this on Wednesday to go out on Thursday. And as I was uh, pondering what to do, it was a nice feeling to have um, multiple options of things to talk about this week. And um, that is in contrast to, you know, some different periods of time over the last couple of years that the podcast has run where I've maybe been a little starved for an idea uh, one week or or two. Um, This semester I have, you know, a bunch of ideas already um, sketched out and even some interviews to go along with those. And, you know, I was thinking about doing another interview this week, but I was really just yearning to kind of spend some time with you guys by myself (laughs) Um, and just do a solo show. So I'm going to do that today. Uh, Today we are going to talk about uh, the top 10 tips for students with disabilities from students with disabilities. And I picked this up actually when I was on my... uh, trip down to Orlando a few months ago when I was at the AHEAD conference that I spoke about last week and that I included the um, audio of the one talk I gave, which was actually about the podcast. Um, So in addition to that, I, you know, I attended a bunch of other workshops and, um, you know, if you've ever been to a conference, you you kind of know the structure. But if not, I'll, I'll clue you in a little bit because this will be helpful for you in the future when you do start going to um, like professional conferences. Uh, depending on how long it is, you know, if it's a day or two days, this was a long conference. This one stretched all week, but really the main the main part of it was three days long. It was like a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. The, the earlier part in the week was more um, like special interest groups and um, – institutes and and other more specialized types of pre-conference activities. But when you go to a conference, you know, you'll check in, you'll get your name tag, which is important for networking. Um, I think people will be more uh, prone to approach you and just start talking to you if you have a name tag that sort of at least identifies your first name and where you're affiliated with, you know, so it would be probably your college if you were attending on behalf of a college. Um, And this is similar for like, career fairs and, and whatnot, but then it deviates a little bit when you have uh, a keynote usually is what, what will kick off. You know, somebody will introduce or, or welcome everyone to the conference and then there'll be like a main speaker and everybody's usually in the room for that. And then there'll be like breakout groups. So after that, there'll be a little break and then there'll be like maybe, I don't know, depending on how big the conference is, so, you know, four workshops up to, you know, the one I was at had like over a dozen different options for you to pick and the uh, uh, workshops were an hour I think so usually between an hour an hour and 15 minutes uh, and they're a little bit more specialized and you can kind of pick something relative to your interests and then there's usually uh, a poster session so that's uh, where people will sort of present on different things um, you know, oftentimes it's research that's summarized on a poster, or it might be some kind of intervention that's like uh, designated for a specific population. So it's good to kind of browse the uh, the workshop. I'm sorry, the poster session area, 
And that's another good, really good networking opportunity. So I picked this sheet up when I was doing that. I was uh, going through the posters and came upon this group, the National Center for College Students with Disabilities. And I said to myself, ah, I know these people. Um, Myself and a colleague have been sort of stalking this website for a number of months because they're engaged in a um, literature review uh, that we're interested in. So we've been kind of checking in. So the National Center for College Students with Disabilities, or NCCSD, is the only federal funded national center in the U.S. for college students with any type of disability, chronic health condition, or mental or emotional illness. We have information for parents, faculty, anyone working with college students, higher ed faculty and staff with disabilities can use NCCSD too. Uh, So there's a bunch of information on this website. It's got a clearinghouse to kind of find uh, information in a more directed way. Um, So lots of resources on this website for both students with disabilities and for faculty that work with students. Uh, that may have disabilities and I so I had been aware of this group and it was really cool to kind of get to talk to them and introduce myself and I picked up this a flyer top 10 tips for students with disabilities from students with disabilities so we're gonna go through this list today and I'm gonna kind of give you my thoughts on each of these Uh, there's a couple that I really value and I think they're all important but you know you're always gonna kind of identify with a couple that really speak to you and then I'm going to focus a few on a few of these for faculty you know as I've tried to include faculty more in the podcast there's a couple of these that I think they can really help us with and I include myself in all of these discussions Um, So anytime I'm referring to faculty, you know, there may be times I sort of take them to task, you know, um, based on, you know, reports from students and, you know, just hearing things in in the uh, university I work at. And um, I include myself as somebody that, you know, needs to get better in all areas as as um, an advocate for students with disabilities and as somebody that can... um, accommodate people um so i don't want to be i don't want to seem like i'm sort of on any kind of soapbox um because i talk about these topics as an effort for not only to kind of raise awareness uh, amongst the faculty you know and the population of teachers that may listen um but also for myself to get better as an instructor and as an academic and, and faculty member so With that, let's get into it, because the first one actually is one of those that I had kind of targeted for faculty as well as students. So number one, disability accommodations are rights, not special help. Ask for what you need. Advocate for yourself. So that's number one. And this one really speaks to me because I am a really big advocate or proponent of accommodations. Uh, when I was doing research for uh, executive functioning and doing the cognitive remediation uh, training for college students with disabilities, I would explain it as accommodations sort of leveling the playing field. Um, you know, you don't expect somebody that has some sort of visual impairment to go into college and be like, sorry, you don't get uh, special help of glasses. Um, you're going to have to go at this without them. <laughs> um you know, so it, it makes just as little sense to kind of deprive somebody of an accommodation, you know, whether it be a physical health accommodation uh, or a mental health accommodation. 
um, they are rights. They, you know, accommodate for or uh, address limitations that you might have that are not your fault and allow you to participate at the same rate as everyone else that may not have those same impairments. All right. So the last part, though, advocate for yourself is really important because I'm sorry to say nobody else is going to advocate for you when you get to college. You know, you may have had your parents being really big cheerleaders in your corner and and strong advocates for you if you had an IEP going up through high school or even if you didn't. Um, you know, they probably were enormous help. And hopefully you gained a lot of skills watching them be uh, effective advocates, right? There's a, there's a way to advocate, and, and maybe that'll be a topic uh, for a future episode. Um, but nobody is going to care about you like you care about you. Um, I've heard this analogy in business. You know, if you, um, you, know, you start your own business, nobody's going to put their, their heart and soul into that business like you do. You know, whether if you hire somebody to be your your right-hand person, they may be really invested, but they're not going to be invested like you are. So advocate for yourself. And if you're unsure, there are resources online to help you. Uh, And again, maybe I'll write myself a note here, an advocacy episode. May need to bring in an an expert for that. I'm not sure. Uh, So faculty can really help with this by supporting students that come to you with accommodation letters and not doing anything to seem like you're passing judgment on them because any kind of you know judgmental attitude is going to make them less likely to request or use accommodations in the future and I, I really don't think that you want that <laughs> um, I would think you'd want students um, taking every possible advantage to put themselves in a position to succeed in your classroom. So we have to do our part as instructors in supporting students that come to us and say, here's how, you know, doing it in a timely manner, <laughs> you know, not just like burying those emails about, oh, here's my letter, you know, I wanted to add, talk to you about it. Uh, I just had this happen this week. Um, and I had to, you know, make it a point to, you know, get back in touch, be like, hey, got it this sounds good. Here's what I'm thinking. You know, if you have any questions, let me know. Uh, So just that kind of personal touch, um, especially if it's an online class, uh, is really helpful. So recognize the importance of accommodations, faculty and students, and don't be afraid to use them. And don't feel like you are, you know, that it is some sort of crutch. Um, These are your your entitled to these. All right, number two, you and you are an important and valuable part of campus diversity. Diversity includes disability, and this was um, this was a message that I really came through strong for me in the conference I attended over the summer. You know, it, I had never really thought about disability as a diversity issue. Uh, as much as I did that week. And it really sort of rang true for me. Uh, So just because somebody has a disability, you know, there may have been this thinking in the past that, oh, that means we need to, you know, segregate them. You know, there's this idea of the self-contained classroom, you know, where, and they used to have this like special ed. um, You put all the kids with disabilities in a room together 
and, uh, you know, separate them from the kids that didn't have them. And, you know, the, the intentions were good. You know, we could get people learning at their own pace, but um, it's segregationist. Uh, and that is not sort of celebrating uh, disability as a diversity issue. Um, so the fact that you're valuable, you have something to to give to other students that may not have disability, they can learn from you. And that's, you know, a big movement to sort of integrate this is, is, you know, this idea of like social learning occurring both ways, right? Um, students with disabilities, you know, so let's say they have some sort of um, social phobia, you know, and being in a classroom or being, you know, integrated in, you know, some sort of normalized environment is going to maybe be scary, um, but also be it a learning experience. You get to watch how other people interact and, you know, you may learn from that. And um, people can learn from you too in how to be more sensitive and tolerant and respectful of people that just need a slightly, um, you know, warmer way to kind of get involved in social activities or interactions uh, or just, you know, being respectful when people, you know, don't want to participate. So, uh, that was a good one as well. Number three, let's talk about number three. College disability service offices can be gatekeepers. So if you don't know what that term is, gatekeeper, think of like somebody standing at a gate with a key that basically says, has the power to say, you know, you can go through the gate and I'm going to let you in or you can't and I'm going to turn you away. Um, college disability service offices can be gatekeepers. Most are good allies for students. But some are not. Demand professional, individualized, respectful services and file a complaint if you don't get them. So filing a complaint is sort of this other piece of advocacy, right? It's first speaking up, but then it's um, taking action if you don't get what you need or are entitled to. Uh, I will agree with the statement that most are good allies for students. You know, the, all the people I met down there, you know, well, they took the time to attend this conference out of their, their busy, you know, times. Um, but so they may be like, you know, the 1% of really invested. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the, the, the support service staff at any university that I've come in contact with, whether it be counseling services or disability services, have been very, you know, student-focused and um, invested in the, in the well-being of the student body. I've met a couple of shitbags, too, Um, you know, unfortunately. Um, Demand professional, individualized, respectful services. So if you get a shitbag, ask for a different one. (laughs) Ask for somebody that's not a shitbag, that has uh, professionalism and can work with you in an individualized way. It isn't going to just, you know, throw some pamphlets at you and be like, okay, I've solved your problem, be on your way, and treat you with respect. And yes, you have a, uh, a right to file a complaint. And if you're ever unsure of how to, uh, and you don't feel like asking them, there are plenty of opportunities, you know, to find that online. You know, Google your school and... Um, ethics complaint or, you know, complaint, uh, you know, complaint filing, and you will find the appropriate um, avenue, you know, to basically have that passed on. Uh, Faculty members, I I kind of um, thought about this one in terms of us as well. You know, in in some sentence sectors, you know, uh, or in some universities, faculty are sort of gatekeepers as well. 
there's this thought, uh, this idea of the no wrong door policy on campuses where if a, a student um, can, any, any person that a student turns to uh, can basically be skilled enough to direct them to the appropriate, uh, you know, service that they need from a mental health perspective. So there's no wrong door. Like they were go to a teacher, you know, the teacher may not be the, the, the person that they, they actually need, but the teacher could direct them to the service professional. Um, you know, the disability office person could direct them, you know, the freaking janitors, you know, it, this idea of no wrong door is like everybody has, everybody that's working on a college campus sort of has this base level of knowledge of how to get students that would potentially come to them looking for services into the right place so that they don't fall through the cracks. Um, so we could sort of maybe not be the ones holding the keys, but we could direct them to the gatekeepers. And I think that that's really important. And sometimes students are scared or a little bit nervous about that process. And I think just normalizing it for them, being like, you know, I get students all the time that have, uh, you know, relationships with disability offices. And it's uh, NBD, no big deal. So, um, and if they need help finding it, you know, do what, what they, you know, what is going to, you know, help them get to that location. All right. That's number three. So we got seven more. <laughs> number four, feed your body and soul. So I, this is why I pick, you know, the things that we talk about when I was kind of revising the tagline for the podcast, you know, where students and faculty come together to talk um, mental health being the number one thing. Um, the number two thing, though, is wellness. And I kind of devoted a whole semester to wellness. Um, and we'll continue to focus a lot on wellness. Um, I'm really excited to bring our mindfulness person on in uh, this upcoming semester. Not sure if it's going to be a few weeks. might be a month. Um, but they are on the docket. Um, so feed your soul and body. Uh, and what else? That's, uh, underneath it says balance your valuable time, energy, and health. So if you think about the different dimensions of wellness out there, you know, you need to feed your body, you know, nutrients, right, uh, to be healthy, your physical body. But you also need to feed your emotional health, you know, and give it what it needs and your spiritual wellness, you know, um, and your academic or intellectual wellness. You know, so all of these things, if you're not sort of paying attention to them and feeding them what they need, are going to lag and it's going to bring you down in other areas as well. So that's why I try and, you know, bring up and talk about different, a lot of different wellness topics that, you know, are prevalent and important for college students. Uh, have sort of a side goal to start yoga this semester. Didn't make it my, my actual goal for here, but, um, I have sort of a rough sketch because I just thought it would be kind of too easy. I think, you know, I just got to, I have an, an, a plan, just got to, you know, reach out to the friend to help me with the accountability aspect. But, um, yeah, I'm interested in checking it out. Uh, so that's number four. Number five, stay focused on your career. I love this one. Uh, if it won't help you get a job or maintain your passion for college, don't bother. So many students that I've met have all of these extracurricular activities, whether they be on campus, you know, oh, student, you know, government and the chess club and, you know, the sorority, um, 
I'm not saying these things are bad. You know, what I'm saying is if these things don't relate to your motives for being in college and your career aspirations, you should really give them some second thought. You know, so if you think about a sorority or fraternity, which we're going to talk about, I think very, very soon, I have an interview coming up on that. Um, you know, there are ways to sort of leverage your uh, relationship with a sorority or fraternity into, you know, networking opportunities or mentorship opportunities by meeting an older brother or sister that can sort of be a, a guide for you. Um, so I'm in no way sort of putting down these extracurricular activities. What I'm saying is have, figure out where they fit in your overall plan, you know. Uh, and it might just be recreational, right? You know, I, I've brought up fantasy baseball before. It's just like my outlet when I just, you know, need to not be thinking about mental health kind of stuff. And so we need those things too, and they they relate to wellness, uh, but they have to be in balance, right? So stay focused on, I don't, wouldn't even say it's career. That's what they say. And um, this is by college students, but like stay focused on your, your academic goal, you know, and, and that might, you know, relate to your professional goal. Uh, think about the extracurricular stuff, and this could be off campus stuff too, uh, in terms of how it will help. Uh, all right. That is number five. Halfway done. Uh, number six is what I'm working on here, I think. It relates to community. Find a community. Never go it alone. Consider connecting with others who have disabilities. So that's sort of what I am trying to build here. You know, one of the foundational aspects of, of why I thought doing a podcast would just be natural, a good idea for me was this idea of, of, of a desire to build a community. And I've seen and been a part of communities that have a podcast as its sort of central communication hub. And it's just brought me so much in terms of knowledge and um, peace of mind, like just knowing like, oh, there's other ones other like me out there. Um, that it, it cannot be underestimated um, what that does for people. So it's hard sometimes in the beginning to figure out like, well, what is my community? You know, where do I fit in? And it's a lot of trial and error. And that goes to the one in the past, like the, the previous one, stay focused on your career. Like um, part of that is like finding your, your group of, you know, supports. Uh, whether that be friends or, you know, like I said, um, different mentors that you might come into contact with that through networking opportunities. Um, when you have that community of, of people that you feel a part of, it's going to make every other aspect of that um, part of your life much more manageable, easier, and fun. So, you know, consider your, your tribe being other people that, you know, struggle in the same way that you do because you have something in common right there. Um, so, you know, you can see through the podcast uh, on Facebook, the page, you know, the different people that like the podcast and, you know, find out their different interests. You know, we I interviewed um, Gabby Frost from The Buddy Project last year or in the beginning of this year. And it's just such an easy idea to just go on and sign up for a buddy. And, you know, the, the way she matches people is just through common interests, you know, bands that you might like, sports, 
whatever. Uh, so that's a really important one. Uh, find a community. And if you don't feel like you have one, it is scary at first to just kind of put yourself out there. But you don't have, you know, if you don't find it's what you like, you don't have to keep doing it, right? Um, quitting is, you know, sort of like talked down upon in this society, like, oh, you shouldn't quit. But, you know, there's good reasons to quit certain things uh, if you're not getting what you need. Okay, now we come up to number seven. And this one may confuse people if they've never heard this term, and maybe I'll try and explain it a little. This is one the, the last one I really had in mind when I was thinking about faculty that might be listening. Universally design your own learning. So for teachers, universally design your curriculum. <laughs> uh, learn how you learn best, and then use your strengths and unique learning style. This is what I was really invested in when I was teaching people cognitive remediation, uh, is helping them figure out how they learned best. You know, uh, It's a little too simplistic to say, based on the, the recent research, you're a verbal learner or visual learner, but that's how a lot of people identify as. So we'll use that example. If you are a visual learner, and the majority of people that I talked to when I asked this question said yes. They identified as more visual learners than verbal learners. Think about how uh, information is presented to you in the typical college classroom, right? You sit down, you open up a notebook or a laptop. Um, you, if you're on a laptop, you open up usually a word processing program. And the teacher comes in and they might have a PowerPoint or maybe not. They might be writing on a whiteboard or something. And they lecture verbally at you for whatever, an hour or whatever. And sometimes you may get a tasty treat of a like video to watch or some kind of demonstration they might do or involvement, you know, involving the class in some kind of activity. And that's your like visual stimulation, but the rest of it is verbal learning. You listen, you sort of interpret what's been said, and then you take notes and, and write down the important key elements. And so if you're a predominantly verbal, uh, visual learner in a verbal learning environment, you have to figure out ways to convert those verbal, well, this would be one way to do it, verbal you know strategies or verbal concepts to visual concepts. So sort of like taking what's been said and, and forming a picture in your mind and really like trying to commit that picture to memory would be one way to sort of uh, use your strengths and unique learning style. If you are more of a verbal learner, then you could take advantage of other aspects like, you know, using an acronym to th remember a series of words you know, or, you know, getting really good with categorizing, you know, these are different ways or, or rhyming, you know, as just like a silly way, you know, come up with a silly rhyme to remember an important uh, aspect. And it's easier to remember the silly rhyme than, you know, whatever the generic term it is that you're trying, generic term you're trying to link to that. So, all right, so that's the second part, universally design your learning. So what does that mean? So there's a, there's a concept called UDL or universal design of learning that is um, pretty popular in this idea of uh, pedagogy. You know, pedagogy is the study of teaching. 
And so faculty members may be aware of the concept of UDL, this idea that if we design our curriculums with, you know, the, the thought that there are going to be people with limitations in the audience, but if we accommodate everybody, uh, the need for individual accommodation actually goes down. Um, so, you know, for instance, uh, making videos, if you make a lot of videos and you caption all the videos, you know, it it actually helps the students that there's there's actual evidence for this um, that don't have any kind of disability or need captioning per se. But if you turn on the captioning, it actually helps students retain information. But it also helps the ones that actually need the captioning, right? And it eliminates this need to do an individual accommodation to say, well, I need captioning, so this uh, instructor is going to have to, you know, make this an additional part of their teaching curriculum. If the teacher did that from the get-go and, and provided it for everyone, not only would it help the students that don't have a disability in some ways, but it also, you know, alleviates the need of that individual accommodation for the student that actually does need it. So there's a lot of universal uh, design learning principles, and they, you know, they're easily found online. And um, if you are a faculty member and have never heard of UDL, I encourage you to kind of check those out. If you're a student, you know, think about the things like that. Like, hey, let me try turning on the captioning and see if it helps. I would suspect it probably does. Um, but learn how you learn best. And that means trying out different things. If you're f finding that, you know, where you're studying, you're struggling with concentrating, go somewhere else. You know, one tactic I use, no matter where I'm studying, if it's out in the public, I don't like to listen to music or podcasts or anything while I'm studying, but I put my headphones in, you know, my earbuds, to, to make it look like it. Because that, first off, it kind of makes me less self-conscious. Like, I just kind of zone out. Um, and don't think about what, you know, if people are looking at me, but it also like gives me an excuse to like not have to associate or talk to anybody, um, cause I'm focusing on studying. So, um, so universally design your own learning. Love that one as well. <laughs> All right. Number eight, never apologize for your disability or your accommodations. This one kind of goes with number one, that they're rights and not special help. So you shouldn't, shouldn't feel sorry for asking for them. Uh, if you apologize, people may think you're ashamed of them. And I hope that's not the case. You know, um, I hope that I've tried to kind of instill this idea that, like, number one, tons of people have accommodations. So it's really not that special. <laughs> if you if you th were thinking, like, oh, I'm special because of this, uh, sorry to say, you're actually not. Um, I think the rate in our department, you know, is self-reported disability was like 30%. That's three out of 10 students in your class have a disability. That doesn't mean necessarily they might have accommodations, um, but they have the right to them. All right, number nine, fight oppression and bullying in any form. So I had a, a tiny caveat to this one because this part, if, it, if you end up doing a lot of this and not number five, what we talked about, stay focused on your career, or if this... Fighting oppression and bullying doesn't necessarily, if it's not necessarily in line with the, the job and passion for college, um, this should be part of what you do, but it shouldn't be everything you do, you know? And I would urge then to add in this kind of qualifier. So I, I put fight oppression and bullying in any form, especially when it's in your circle of influence. 
So when you have the ability to influence it in a positive way, yes, you know, step in, fight it. Um, the opposite, or not the opposite, but the other way to think about it, you know, in terms of, or as opposed to circle of influence is circle of concern. You know, bullying really concerns me. Um, but I may not be in a position to necessarily influence it. So if you ever have this question of circle of concern and circle of influence, I really recommend you check out Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I did do a podcast episode on it, I think the first season. So you'd have to go back kind of far to look. Um, but yeah, I am all about this. But again, not making it your your you know making it too much of a part of your life unless that is what your your calling is unless that's what your career is going to be which certainly is a viable option there's a lot of you know advocacy positions out there all right so that is number nine. Oh, and the the part under that is sort of like the, the the little descriptive part is so it says fight oppression and bullying in any form ableism is just one ism if one of us is oppressed, all of us are oppressed. And so I bring this up because I actually had never heard this term ableism. Sad to say, I'm, it's kind of embarrassing, I think, now when I've done a little bit of research on it. Um, until I was at this conference over the summer. And so if you haven't heard it, because it's okay. <laughs> um, if I haven't, I was actually talking to a good friend of mine from college uh, last night, and I mentioned that I was doing an episode about this, and I mentioned ableism, and he was he works at a college campus too, and was like, "What's ableism?" So I didn't feel as bad, but I have here. This is just Wikipedia, so you know, take it for what it's worth. Ableism is discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities. So if you think of able being able, and then ism is like. Um, you know, racism, all these isms, you know, the this discrimination of people that are not able-bodied. Uh, on the basis, people are assigned or denied certain perceived abilities, skills, or character traits. Discrimination faced by those who have or are perceived to have a mental disorder is some kind of called mentalism rather than ableism, which again is a, a new term for me. So, you know, this is the idea that, you know, people are discriminated based on, you know, a, di a disability or, or not being able to do something. So I had never, again, never heard that term before, but um, I'm glad that I'm sort of become aware. And then, so that is number nine. And then our last one, uh, learn disability history. Learn about the people and movements that made it possible for you to be in college. And so I think that that is just such an important point on many levels, not just in terms of disability, um, but just in terms of life. You know, history is really important because it repeats itself. That is a fact of life. And so if you can learn that from the mistakes of history, you know, you'll be less likely to repeat them. Um, and it also just makes you a better sort of prognosticator, you know, in terms of being able to spot trends and, you know, not predict things per se, but just kind of see where things are headed in the long term. I think that that's a really helpful skill to have in terms of being able to plan out your career and, and kind of 
um, sift through your passions to find the ones or settle on the ones that are sort of most in term most in line with those long-term trends so as my little contribution to disability history uh, the thing I'm going to wrap up on today is suicide prevention so if you guys are not aware this is suicide prevention awareness week and so I want to do just a quick brief history of suicide prevention in the United States so this is coming from an NIH website. I will include the link uh, in the show notes for today. But uh, in 1958, the first suicide prevention center in the United States opened. Any idea where? Uh, it was actually surprising to me. Los Angeles, California. Um, and funding came from U.S. Public Health Service. Other crisis intervention centers followed. In 1966, the Center for Studies of Suicide Prevention, later the Suicide Research Unit, was established at NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, which is a part of NIH. The, this was followed by the creation of the national nonprofit organizations dedicated to the cause of suicide prevention. So 1966 stands out because it was just after President Kennedy in 19, I believe, 63 or 64, signed the 63 um, Community Mental Health Centers Act, which was a, a very important landmark piece of legislation that sort of really spurred the deinstitutionalization movement. So it makes sense that sort of there, there would be a lot of, um, you know, different agencies forming and, and money being allocated to different things at this time period in, in history. In 1970, NIMH convened a task force in Phoenix, Arizona, to discuss the status of suicide prevention in the U.S. and presented the findings in a 1973 report called Suicide Prevention in the 70s, which also identified future directions and priorities. Uh, in 1983, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, established a violence prevention unit that brought public attention to a disturbing increase in youth suicide rates. In response, the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services established a task force on youth suicide, which reviewed uh, existing evidence and issued recommendations in 1989. Suicide became a central issue in the U.S. in the mid-1990s. It's hard, it's kind of scary to think that it, that wasn't that long ago. You know, I was just graduating college back then, eeks. Uh, when survivors of suicide saw the need to mobilize attention and the political will to prevent suicide in the nation. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit, uh, as recommended, there were some UN guidelines established, um, the innovative, uh, which led to groups set out to establish a public and private partnership that would jointly be responsible for promoting suicide prevention in the U.S., this innovative public, this innovative public-private partnership, jointly sponsored a national consensus conference on suicide prevention in Reno, Nevada, which developed a list of 81 recommendations. This Reno conference is viewed as the founding event of the modern suicide prevention movement. Um, and I won't get into all 81 recommendations, um, but they have five key points that I'll I'll read real quick. And that will sort of end on for today, uh, as well as an opportunity. Don't let me forget to talk about that. Uh, so key points from the conference. Number one, suicide prevention must recognize and affirm the value, dignity, and importance of every person. 
Number two, suicide is not solely the result of illness or inner conditions. Feelings of hopelessness that contribute to suicide can stem from societal conditions and attitudes. You know, ugh, that's so important. Therefore, everyone concerned with suicide prevention shares a responsibility to help change attitudes and eliminate the conditions of oppression, racism, homophobia, discrimination, and prejudice. And I'll add ableism to that. Really fights. Uh, it really goes with number nine that we just talked about on those top ten uh, tips. Number nine is fighting oppression and bullying in any form. Because it's true. If, if one is oppressed, everyone is oppressed. Still. Number three, some groups are disproportionately affected by these societal conditions and some are a greater risk for suicide. Number four, individuals, communities, organizations, and leaders at all levels should collaborate to promote suicide prevention. And number five, the success of this strategy ultimately rests with individuals and communities across the U.S. You know, it's not a Department of Health and Human Services, you know, directive i mean responsibility it's not their responsibility it's our responsibility and i'm trying to do my little part here and hopefully people especially this week which is national suicide prevention week can do their little part so i'm giving people an opportunity to do their little part um so i'm running a little um itunes review drive from now until the end of the month so that gives us about 17 days and here are the terms. So I want to give back to and sort of recognize Suicide Prevention Week. So here's what we're going to do, and here's how you can help with that. Um, I took a look today at my iTunes reviews, and I'm sad to say I haven't seen any new ones in a while. So here's my attempt to, um, to, to get that going, and it is a way for you to give back for Suicide Prevention Week. So there's a... Um, a Twitter page that I follow, an organization that I think is really cool called To Write Love on Her Arms. So it's at T-W-L-O-H-A.com, To Write Love on Her Arms, acronym. And they are an organization that, I'm just going to their website here. They're a nonprofit uh, that started out with uh, this founder, Jamie, um, meeting somebody named Renee who's struggling with addiction, depression, self-injury, and suicidal thoughts. Um, Jamie wrote about the five days he spent with her before she entered a treatment center and sold t-shirts to help cover the cost. When she entered treatment, he posted the story on MySpace to give it a home. The name of the story was To Write Love on Her Arms, and the original story can be found on the website. Um, I will include it in the show notes for today. And it basically uh, um, raises awareness for suicide prevention. And um, I just really like this. So, you know, when you think about it, there's so many organizations out there that are worthy. Um, but this organization just kind of really speaks to me. Um, so what I'm going to be doing is between now and the end of the month, anybody that writes a review on iTunes... Um, for every review that I receive, I will donate $10 to this organization. Um, you know what? Fuck it. $15. <laughs> so for every review I get um, that people write, not including the ones that are already up there because I did a similar thing and uh, made donations to other organizations for those reviews. But between now and the end of the month, every review that I get, I will donate $15 
um, up to a certain amount. You know, don't don't bankrupt me, but you know, it'll be significant, a couple hundred dollars at least. Um, and I will donate to this organization uh, in honor of the College Student Success Podcast and anyone that has lost anybody due to suicide. So hopefully that, you know, you guys may hear that and say, hey, that's an easy way I could give back and um, get $15 into the pockets of an organization that could really use it to help spread awareness. So that sounds like something you like to do. You know, it doesn't even have to be a kick-ass review. Um, It would be awesome if it was. But, um, you know, anything that would make it more helpful for me, you know, in terms of learning what people would like um, would be great, you know, even if it's not the most stellar review. Um, I, the, just reviews in general really help get the podcast more noticed on iTunes. So if like people search for things like mental health, you know, it shows up higher in the listings. So um, it's not a vanity project. It's just really to kind of spread awareness for the podcast is why I ask for reviews uh, and write-ups and, and comments, ratings. So hopefully that is something you guys uh, want to do and uh, maybe want to share. Um Otherwise, yeah, that's all I got for this week. Oh, no, home exercise. Got to do our home exercise for this week. So last week, you were picking a goal, something that matters to you, talking about it to somebody or writing it down to kind of give it some accountability. This week, take that to the next step. Write down a plan for your goal. List out the different steps, you know, at least the first few, and assign a deadline to the very first step. Put that step on your master to-do list or wherever you keep track of the things you need to get done for your life, you know, whether that's in your calendar or you have a separate to-do list. Um, Make that first step. So for me, it was um, doing some Facebook ads. So I did one last week to kind of promote the post for the first episode uh, to get some more eyeballs on it. And that's where, you know, my goal is to kind of, um, I want to double my, the amount of downloads that I have, um, on a monthly basis of the podcast and really get it, get it to the next level. So by, uh, writing some reviews and you can do that, not only do that, but sort of, um, gets again, some, um, some money into this organization, uh, to write love in her arms. So with that, ah, so a lot of me talking this week, uh, hopefully you guys got a lot out of it. I was certainly happy to, you know, do one of these solo episodes. It's been a long time. Uh, next week, I think I will be going back to an interview. Um, can't wait to be back. Have a great week, everyone. Peace.